Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about what I did on my summer vacation. Or actually, proud to know you for... I've done three previous Proud to Know You episodes, all circulating around the idea of participating in the Pride 48 Podcasting Expo live events. The first one was recorded before I had lined up all my ducks to do any sort of live appearance. That was released in September of 2013. I was still lining up ducks a year or two later. It took a couple of years for me to get out to the Las Vegas event, and the one I attended was 2015, meaning that Proud to Know You 2 was also released near the end of September in 2015. One sort of a, my thoughts about going, and the other, my thoughts about having just gone. There was a hiatus between uh, Pride 48 events. The last one in Las Vegas, three years went by before the first one in New Orleans. That was in 2018. I did participate in that one releasing the live episode of the podcast that was recorded there in New Orleans in September and releasing Proud to Know You 3, talking about the event, in October. This year, if things go to plan, I will have a September release for both the uh, Inappropriate Conversation show that was recorded live that was released most recently on the feed here under the name Why We Watch. This one, Proud to Know You 4, I think I'm going to call Gregarious. And just because it's a pun, uh, play on my name, what have you. But I do want to talk about what it's like to be willfully and uh, intentionally and happily social, I guess is the way I'd word it. Part of a social event, part of an event that's designed to bring people together. And I've said before on past shows that I think I kind of live at 0.0 on the graph when it comes to the introvert-extrovert scale. I'm comfortable enough speaking before large groups. Larger groups than either of the ones that have been released here from live New Orleans recordings the last couple of years. Uh, because of church and work and other occasions, quite sure I've spoken in front of 200 or more people at one time before. Doesn't bother me. I'm also the kind of person very comfortable being in a one-on-one or one-on-two kind of a setting, even in the midst of a party that has hundreds of people in it. So I, I can vary wildly between introvert and extrovert. Here this very weekend that I'm recording, I'm finding myself veering very much in the introvert direction, uh, actively looking for time to be relatively, if not completely, alone, and you know, not always being successful at it. But when you're going to a podcasting expo like Pride 48, you kind of know that part of that is that there's going to be a social aspect. And frankly, it comes naturally, because uh, in most cases of seeing people I'm only going to see once a year, and this is the time. And in other cases, I may be seeing people that I'm only going to see once in a lifetime as it plays out. The last inappropriate conversation ended with me sort of very briefly eulogizing Mags, who died earlier this year. I only met him in person one time at the Las Vegas Pride 48 event I went to in 2015. He was not able to make it last in 2018. And of course, you know, then the tragedy struck in the uh, in the winter time, so I try not to take any of these things for granted. So a lot of this is going to focus on the events that happened in New Orleans, but maybe to set the stage a little bit, 
Last year, when my wife and I decided we were going to attend this event, we tacked it on. And I think it literally was sort of added in to the end of a vacation that was already pretty well planned. We spent time together alone uh, on part of the trip in Vermont and New Hampshire, parts of Maine. And then by the end of the trip in Maine, we met a, an old high school friend of mine I hadn't seen in years. And then you go from that relative degree of sort of just the two of us into, boom, you know, a, an event like Pride 48 in New Orleans. And it is a bit of a culture shock. This time, we sort of worked that in the opposite direction. We started off at the Pride 48 event in New Orleans, then spent two or three days in Las Vegas. And near the end of the time in Las Vegas, we rented a car, went out to the Hoover Dam area for the first time, kind of followed the lake back to the city from the northern direction. And that was sort of the beginning of the trip where it was just the two of us again. We went from Las Vegas to the Arches National Park in Utah, just uh, just north of Moab, then back across Utah to the uh, Heber City Park City area. Uh, while we were there, we, we visited at Homestead, where we were able to swim in a natural warm mineral springs crater, where there's a, an opening at the top of the crater that really is only kind of covered with the kind of netting you might use to prevent uh, birds from flying in there or to deal with um, snow and ice in the wintertime. And it wasn't as hot as a hot tub, which I think was good for both my wife and me, but for temperatures in the in the mid to high 90s, in a very large cave that went like 60 feet deep. So some people were in there scuba diving, some were snorkeling, uh, my wife and I were basically floating around, but taking full advantage of that experience. The trip also included kind of our my wife's first sea at Wyoming, both of us first sea at Wyoming and Idaho. So we took sort of a side driving trip, kind of followed the Snake River up through Wyoming into Idaho and spent the night in Idaho Falls. And uh, just considering the fact that it was an extra night of expense that we'd already paid for a week in the uh, Heber City Hideaway area of Utah, that we were paying for one night, it was well worth it because that part of Idaho Falls is really, really nice uh, with a microbrewery and some restaurants and hotels right on their river walk which they've developed with a right, the right kind of mentality, considering that the falls of Idaho Falls are admittedly and self-acknowledged to be somewhat modest, you know, four or five feet high, not, you know, the kind of, not the kind of waterfalls you expect when you see pictures of the island of Molokai in Hawaii. Much more, even really more modest than some of the waterfalls we passed in the area of Utah that we were staying in. But they really built the river up around it nicely. And considering that it's not like a raging rapids kind of a river. They've instead taken parts of it and built sort of a Japanese garden around there with water features. It's got a bike trail, hiking trail, benches where you can just sort of sit and take in the scene. Really a, a lovely detour. And I don't know that I could recommend that somebody would fly to Salt Lake City with an intent to spend time at Park City and make the three and a half hour drive north just to see downtown Idaho Falls. But if you ever were in the area, it's definitely worth the detour. So for our trip this summer, we started the year with a visit to friends in Anchorage, Alaska. And then we ended the year with sort of this um, you know, visiting states we hadn't seen before, Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho in particular. But this time, instead of uh, having a long trip planned and adding Pride 48 to it, we had Pride 48 planned and added a trip to it. So it worked out really nicely. The one thing that makes me nervous whenever I'm going to an event where performance is a piece of it is that I'm not terribly 
good, I think is probably the right word for it, or that comfortable with costuming. And let me just kind of walk through very quickly what this year's event schedule was like to get to give you a sense of how things flowed. On Friday, this was from August 16th to August 18th in New Orleans, there was a pink carpet show, sort of an introducing the podcasters thing. It's going to tie back to this in the end when I begin talking about me not really being the kind of person who's proactively planful about costumes. I've worked for time to time in companies where Halloween was celebrated, and you know, I've it's always been a bit of a struggle for me to figure out how to participate that in a way that is consistent with kind of who I am. This year, for those who've met me at Pride 48, uh, my game plan is Yukon Cornelius, the prospector character from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the classic uh, stop-motion animation show from the mid, mid to early 60s. And I think I can pull that off with just the right um, earmuffs, hat, and shirt. Um, I'm hopeful that if I just let the beard and mustache grow enough, it won't be exactly the right mustache for Yukon Cornelius, but I think the clothes may make the man in this case. If I need to, I simply could add in like a, a prop pick, like an axe of some sort, and yell gold and silver a lot. It might get the job done, but it takes me a long time to get where I'm good enough, where I'm pink carpet ready, I guess is the way I would put that. That was followed by a welcoming show, a game of Password, Big Fatty Online, and the Archer's Radio Gangbang Podcast. The next day on Saturday, podcasts like Foul Monkeys, a listener-led show, which was the show right before mine. So when I put out Inappropriate Conversations 218 as a podcast, I bracketed it on either side with what we call interstitials. The process of moving a group of podcasters away from the microphones and sort of off the stage, so to speak, and moving uh, new folks in with their headphones and any of their materials. During that sort of five-minute break, the experience in the studio in New Orleans doesn't stop. Uh, somebody steps up and does an interstitial. In this case, I've got um, Taylor from Pod is My Co-Pilot as the intro to Inappropriate Conversations 218, and Taffy Carlisle Huffington from Pod is My Co-Pilot as the outro. Just taking advantage of the way the files were released this year made it easy for me to add just a little bit on either side and provide a sense of the before, during, and after experience of live podcasting. So after that Listen Up show was me, Inappropriate Conversations, followed by a show that I talked about again, and I won't go over it again, but the replacement for Cocktails and Cream Cups because Cocktails and Cream Puffs were unable to travel this year. After a break, um, the evening lineup Saturday was Pot is My Co-Pilot, Poke It With a Stick, and Geeky Gay. Sunday was But First, Big Brother Recap Show, Gayish, Gay Life of a Country Boy, Scooter Diaries, Blime Time, and then a closing show that included raffle drawings. So that's sort of the event, meaning that the very first thing that I was kind of thoughtful about in terms of knowing that I was going to be uh, on a microphone being interviewed was this pink carpet show. And every year, it's sort of a question mark or a challenge for me to figure out, well, what am I going to wear? Because some people do, quite literally, dress up for that event. And at some point, last year, in 2018 when we went, my wife and I both wore the t-shirts that our church produced for the Pride Walk near where we live. The uh, church that year had made tie-dye t-shirts with black letters that said, I support the separation of church and hate. And that usually catches a lot of people's attention. 
gets appropriate reactions, I would say, and that can mean either thing. It's a bit of a litmus test when you're out in public. You can tell the kind of people who would not welcome me in their church based on the shirt, and you can tell the kind of people who, I hope, get the impression, the accurate impression, that the church I go to is a little different from most. But it didn't seem like the right idea to show up two years in a row just wearing, you know, church logo wear, for want of a better word. And then, in the form of Pot is My Co-Pilot, inspiration struck. The only advice Tank has had is he's like, you know, he goes, I'm not being funny. Make sure you guys have enough cash that's bail money. <laughs> like, for us, he's like, for anybody who needs it. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> when we no. make bad choices. <laughs> we're not placing that offer right, out no, there. We're so not that's where... it out there. <laughs> Where we get Adam walking over going, now, I couldn't help but notice on the last show. And um, we have a problem with Greg from inappropriate conversations that we think that maybe you could help. That would be awesome if Greg was the problem child. Are you kidding me? That would be hysterical. See, like he's in jail and it's going to cost this much to bail him out. But he's also going to need, you know, they, they want to charge extra to give him his ball gag back. And I'm just not sure. <laughs> Greg is a lovely gentleman. Now, you <laughs> Greg is a lovely, lovely gentleman, lovely, which is that, not, that's the comedy of this, that of all the people that have right. a ball gag in their mouth. Greg is what cut to the pink car part where we walked in and go, oh, go, go. Greg, challenge extended. So. <laughs> all right, gentlemen. So I did not necessarily have any of the necessary costume design to fulfill the challenge that Taffy and Taylor and Rodan had extended during the podcast they released right before the live event. But coming at the nick of time as it did, I didn't have any trouble figuring out where the appropriate store was in town and how to try to find a way to affordably buy the necessary costuming. So I showed up. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the things that are not podcasting. If you were to go to a Pride 48 in New Orleans, you have the opportunity to participate in lots of different events. This is assuming, of course, that what I'm saying is meaningful and the show, the event happens again and happens again soon and happens again in New Orleans. I would only say that the event's been there for the last two years, and they are two for two in terms of success rate, not just in terms of participation from the community, but also from the reception and uh, the accommodations and everything else. Holiday Inn Superdome has been really a wonderful experience, in my opinion. And being so close to the uh, Harris Casino and to the Bourbon Street parts of uh, New Orleans, it really is uh, conveniently located. On Thursday, which turned out to be the day we arrived, despite our intentions to get there a day sooner, was dinner at a seafood restaurant. For some people, they went on a bar hopping tour. Won't go into detail on that. I wasn't a participant in that in that part. Then on Friday afternoon, right before the events kicked off, the group went out to a Cajun Creole cooking class. This class on Friday really had me worried because I don't eat seafood, and I've historically had very negative experiences with Cajun, with uh, Cajun food, generally speaking, high level, and with gumbo in particular. And the menu for this cooking class was a gumbo and a jambalaya and pralines. So trying to avoid as much sugar as I, as I possibly can meant that the most attractive part, at least in theory, of those three elements of the cooking class was the sugary part that I'm supposed to resist at all costs. And I was really concerned that if gumbo and jambalaya had been made the way I was used to them being made, that the very best I could do is try to dodge the shrimp and at least sample what was being offered. 
But this cooking class was really, well, first off, it was really engaging and entertaining and it was a wonderful venue. But also, for whatever reason, the decision was made to cook the dishes with sausage and chicken. Meaning I not only had firsts, I had seconds. And it's just possible that I finally, after all these decades, made my peace with gumbo. That was at 4 p.m. From there, we were planning to contribute gifts to a gift basket for the raffle that ended the weekend. And rather than transport the kinds of things that would be uh, heavy and potentially fragile on that trip, um, on the plane, we decided instead to only bring with us a couple of potentially collapsible bags that could be then, you know, opened up and filled with, well, whatever we decided to, to buy and participate in the raffle. And our thoughts early on was to create a couple of mixed drink baskets Maybe find something truly local and get like a Manhattan basket or a martini basket or one of each. And I found that probably the closest place to us that was a truly local distillery was 7-3 Distillery near downtown New Orleans. We went there, saw the tour, uh, sampled the drinks, and made some purchases, including purchases to participate in the raffle by giving away what ended up being a Moscow Mule basket based on their uh, locally locally made cucumber vodka and then a sort of a traditional gin and tonic basket but the gins at this particular location were really really interesting using botanicals that you know go beyond mere juniper and were representative of uh, different very sites and not sites but flavors particular to the New Orleans area and including one of the gins that after they've traditionally distilled it, they age it in bourbon barrel. So a bourbon barrel aged gin, still taking advantage of the combination of juniper, but a wide variety of local spice and flavor. That didn't give us a lot of time to get back to the hotel and change into the costume. And for me, the costume was, well, I guess I, I tried my best to hide it, right? I, I had a dark t-shirt on for like a concert, like a concert shirt on. I put on some like some safety pins and stuff like that to sort of punk it up somewhat. And then I had hidden, sort of wearing it as a necklace underneath my shirt, where because the t-shirt was black, you couldn't really tell. I'm kind of a big guy anyway, so you really couldn't tell that what I'd hidden underneath my shirt was a ball gag. And at the point in time that I was sort of backstage ready to be introduced, at the very last minute, even shocking Taffy, who was functioning as sort of the uh, the stage mom at this point, uh, making sure that people were properly prepared and also properly introduced, I put the ball gag in my mouth and walked out in almost the way that Taylor Taffy and Rodan had described it in Pot as My Co-Pilot. This, of course, went from being a purchase made Wednesday morning, packed into the luggage, delivered to New Orleans no later than Thursday, worn on the pink carpet Friday, then cleaned like I would a CPAP machine to where it was suitable to give away in the raffle and was apparently appreciated by the person who won. So a kind of an, a very quick sort of use of costume. I have some things that I bought in the past for costumes that I could drag out again if I wanted to. I could, I could pretend to be Bob Ross again um, on the fly as long as my hair was of a certain length and it needed to be done. I figured this one was a bit of a one-off. I was kind of amused by the conversation around it, though, and we've made efforts to uh, sort of... It won't be the show art for this episode. Let's just put it that way. I was amused by the conversations around it because, to me, um, Pot is my co-pilot had it right. This is kind of not who I am. And I thought, because Inappropriate Conversations, as a podcast, first has the name Inappropriate Conversations, 
And second, this pink carpet show sort of tells a story, and that story probably um, could use a little more explanation. I thought I might have brought it up the next morning at the group Saturday breakfast at 10 a.m., but it just didn't work its way into regular breakfast conversation because this was the first time that I've ever had a ball gag in my mouth. But it may not be the first time that I've actually experimented with that kind of restraint to some degree. Now, I have to go back a couple of decades here, and it makes sense if inappropriate conversations is not just a show about politics and religion and the collisions therein, but also about popular culture, but also about sex, uh, the logo for the show, which goes all the way back to the very beginning, has not just politics and religion, but sex and drugs in its title as well. I probably have the least knowledge and certainly the least practical experience of all those when it comes to drugs. But there was a point in time when I thought that it might be interesting to play with restraints and restraints from a mouth perspective. But to me, the ball gag presents a problem, at least the one that we got from the local store, presents a problem in that it doesn't necessarily guarantee maximum comfort for the other person. That to me, the denial, the deferral of satisfaction, the sort of the game that's behind that, best served if what is being used as a mouth restraint is as soft as possible. And I'm going strictly from memory here because it's been a couple of decades, but I think it was probably the one time that I've tried it was a the rope of a robe. So whether that's cotton or some sort of a more velvety fabric or whatever, a fairly long but extremely soft sort of uh, de facto belt of sorts. Now, the risk with that particular kind of belt is that if you tie a knot too well, you might have to cut it off to get it off because unlike something you might buy in a sex shop, a fabric is not necessarily designed to be tied and untied and for use in this particular manner. But if you've wrapped that around someone's mouth and tied it even remotely tight, you've done a couple of interesting things. One is you've made it very difficult, but not impossible for the person to speak. The other thing, you've made it unlikely, but not impossible for that person to move their tongue out of their mouth. What is probably impossible is putting lips together into any sort of a closed mouth sort of kiss or sucking motion. But it doesn't completely rule out moving your tongue from your mouth. But what it does do is it guarantees the comfort of your partner if sensitive parts of their body are in the vicinity of a mouth that is being, you know, sort of teased in this manner. That's all I'm going to say about that. It just did mean that the prop that I'd bought for the costume didn't necessarily need to come back home with me. That's not the way I play. I guess it'd be the way I'd word it. Um, The other thing that we did from an after-hours perspective was when the event was over and that final raffle was done on, like, it was 6 or 7 o'clock on Sunday night, there was an 8 o'clock bring-your-own-beer cemetery bus tour. So a guided tour where we literally, as a group, filled an entire bus. It was all us. No poor, unsuspecting strangers filling out the last couple of seats on this bus, which, for its own part, might have been amusing, but it turned out to be all, all of our thing. And it was, uh, in one case, a drive-by, some very famous sepulchral-based cemeteries, cemeteries where, because of the nature of New Orleans and the sea level, the bodies are uh, above ground, not put into the ground. Um, And then a trip for what turned out to be a ghost-hunting kind of a tour. Uh, I was less interested in that, and to be honest with you, a little bit tired from from a very busy week to take full advantage of that. But all the same, it's a pretty good indication of the effort made to make these events you know, fun and interesting and 
uh, to leverage what New Orleans can bring to group participation. Because one of the things about New Orleans as a location that's a little bit tricky is that sometimes the city is not, sometimes the city struggles a little bit to accommodate groups of 30 or 40 or 50 people. Because, especially in the uh, the Bourbon Street area, uh, even some of the famous locations, don't necessarily have the world's biggest capacity. And unless you're paying what it would cost to rent the entire place out, when you're talking about Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday, uh, you're not going to be the only ones there. And it can be a little bit tricky. For a couple of meals, we made sure that we were in smaller groups because it was easier to manage a group of, say, four people than it was to try to go to. Well, the only way the cooking school really worked was that we were in there quickly enough to have a reservation for more than 20 and to guarantee that um, it's not a walk-up situation. Let's put it that way. And the people who do the preparation, the suits, so to speak, for Pride 48, do such a good job that in all three years that I've attended these events, I haven't encountered any sort of snafu, in other words, that I found to be uh, in any way taking you out of the event. Of course, the main reason I go is to participate in podcasting. And this year, I did what I thought might not have been possible when I first started considering, in 2013, going to a live podcasting expo. I didn't think it was possible to do an inappropriate conversations show at that length and with a different drummer and with you know potentially uh, 55 minutes of topic by myself. I think if there's a takeaway, and I'm just guessing here because I didn't actually survey anybody, but I think if there's a takeaway from this event, it's that, well, for one thing, I, I am capable of talking for an hour by myself. I think that probably goes without saying, but that it's a different thing to watch it happen and that there may have been a few people who were a little bit kind of surprised that A, I wasn't really in danger of running out of material. I kind of had to rush a little bit at the end to make sure I created some sort of distance between the end of the different drummer segment and the closing music to the show. But it was uh, admittedly as awkward as I thought it might be because uh, in the, the previous year I'd had a guest host and that worked so wonderfully that I'm obviously quite open to doing it that way again in the future. In the podcast, um, Why We Watch, Inappropriate Conversations 218, I talk about a handout that I brought to New Orleans to give people an index of the different drummers. And two things came out of that. First, some of the people who, like me, wear glasses and need them, kind of called out that getting 216 names, even divided into two columns on one piece of paper, was a bit hard to read. The font size was a touch on the small side. So what I decided to do, partly because, you know, anybody who's interested in this index who couldn't attend, and those who were going to struggle to read the handout even if they took it with them, I went to the website at inappropriateconversations.org and divided all those different drummers up into certain thematic chunks based on who they were. I put actors and characters and uh, otherwise performance artists together, for example, I had the musicians and the songwriters together. So I, in thematic groups, I think eight of them in total, needed to put those out. Because of the 218 Inappropriate Conversations podcasts I've recorded, there has been 216 formal different drummers. The two episodes that didn't have different drummers, um, at least not in the, the format that I use, one was the very first introductory test episode to the show, and the other one was frankly, introducing the concept of different drummer 
in, in, in the first place. Just an entire episode built around the concept and how it came to me. And then from episode three on, every show has had a topic and a different drummer to go with it. This one is no different. In the last Inappropriate Conversations podcast, I mentioned my frustration at not having a chance yet to see the movie Rocket Man, based on the life story of Elton John, and cut in some ways from the same cloth as Bohemian Rhapsody that came out a year or so ago, but in other ways meaningfully different. The main reason that I wanted to watch the movie, though, was to make sure that nothing in the movie contradicted my opinion of this week's different drummer, Bernie Toppin. right up front that I've mentioned Elton John in the context of being a different drummer at least once before. I think it kind of goes back to Inappropriate Conversations 107. By my records, this would have been December of 2012, uh, would have been no later than January of 2013. And in that episode, I named Freddie Mercury of Queen the different drummer. It's kind of ironic that in back-to-back years, uh, Hollywood has released biopics, one featuring prominently Freddie Mercury and the other one featuring prominently Elton John, because in that episode I had to sort of make a choice. I, I kind of got myself down to one of those two as the different drummer and went with Freddie Mercury. As I recall, I explain it during that different drummer segment, released very late in the year 2012. But when it came to this year, the decision was once again, am I going to name as a different drummer Elton John, the performer, or Bernie Toppin, the songwriter? And, you know, there's been a handful of times previous to this that I have named songwriters as different drummers. Uh, At first, when I was starting this podcast, I might have thought, well, I could see myself doing this once or twice. But Bernie Toppin is now at least the fourth. By my recollection, um, the hymn writer Horatio G. Spofford was named as a different different drummer. Uh, Stephanie Davis, very early on, the country songwriter who wrote such hits for Garth Brooks as We Shall Be Free, and uh, The Gift and Wolves, named her as one. Paul McGrain from uh, the movie Fame was named in Inappropriate Conversations 90, and now Bernie Toppin. This begs the question of whether any of the other musicians that I've cited over the years qualify as both musicians and songwriters. That's absolutely true when you think of names like Elvis Costello and Leonard Cohen, among the others. But for Toppin, the decision kind of came down to, is my love of the music of Elton John primarily built around my interest in Elton John as a singer? Is it more about the melody and the music? Or is it more about the lyrics? And in this case, really wasn't that close of a decision. Now, I think you've got to give the art of song interpretation a nod, meaning that for a couple of times now, so far in the the run span of inappropriate conversations, I'm coming awfully close to deservedly naming Elton John and not quite getting it done. And the movie Rocket Man does make a suggestion that their collaboration was uh, truly enough to name them together. But I've decided not to do it because the origin story tells a very different tale. It tells a story of the lyrics being written independently and Elton John taking from the lyrics, just from words on page, the inspiration to craft a song around those lyrics. And therefore, for much of what I consider to be the heyday, the most productive part 
of their partnership, um, they were working independently. Now, again, I think there's a certain song craft that we give credit to people like uh, Frank Sinatra and to some extent Garth Brooks of being able to take songs written by other people and make them your own. The delivery is really important. And of course, in the case of Elton John, he's not just singing other people's songs. He's at least a 50% contributor to the collaboration through the music alone and on occasion, the lyrics. As I often do with different drummer segments, let me just briefly introduce Toppin from the perspective of his Wikipedia page. Bernard John Toppin is an English lyricist, poet, and singer. He is best known for his longtime collaboration with Sir Elton John, having written the lyrics for most of John's songs. In 1967, Toppin answered an advertisement placed in the UK music paper New Music Express by Liberty Records, a company that was seeking new songwriters. Around the same time, John responded to the same ad, and the duo were put together, collaborating on many projects since. In 1971, journalist Penny Valentine wrote that Bernie Toppin's lyrics were to become as important as Elton John himself, proved to have mercurial brilliance, not just in their atmospheric qualities and descriptive powers, but in the way he handled words to form them into straightforward poems that were easy to relate to. In 1992, along with Elton John, Toppin was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and appropriately so. I certainly don't want to create a uh, you know farmer and rancher should be friends scenario here by dividing the music and the lyrics in any sort of a harsh way. No, for me, if Toppin belongs in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Elton John does too. Likewise, if Elton John belongs in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, it is certainly true that Toppin deserves to be there with him. I try not to put too much stock in to the narrative created by a biopic. It is very possible that Bernie Toppin's, that any sort of personal missteps, uh, any peccadilloes from Toppin, were glossed over in a movie that was in some ways forcing, and Rocket Man forcing the emphasis on Elton John's missteps and mistakes and personal misfortunes. So I don't want to rely any more on the biography than that. What I'll do instead was, as I was making this decision about citing Toppin individually for a different drummer, was I wrote down, kind of somewhat arbitrarily, but I did use a, a standard ABC123 sorting process to identify what I believed, at least a few weeks ago, were my 10 favorite Elton John songs. Now, most of these, and I think this might be true of a lot of people, are going to be songs that come in the, uh, in the 70s, even early 70s, maybe late 60s. Uh, it's not exclusively 1970s music, but there's definitely a bias in that regard. My exercise was to independently and with as little foreknowledge as possible write down the songs from Elton John that I love more than any other and then determine who the songwriter was. And if and only if Toppin was the overwhelming majority of the songwriters of those songs that mean the most to me, only in that case would I cite Toppin or at least cite him alone as the different drummer. Here's the catch. When I did the exercise, Toppin is the lyric songwriter for every single one of these songs. And I think that gives you a pretty fair indication of his importance and how I feel about the lyrics of, of Elton John and Bernie Toppin. It's funny that trying to place Elton John is a little bit of a challenge. Not just that he has you know, covered a, a fairly good variety of popular music from the musical work he's done for The Lion King and, and others, for uh, disco efforts, including the Kiki D duet Don't Go Breaking My Heart, 
two things which are definitely absolutely unquestionably rock. Rock in every Saturday night's all right for fighting sense of the word. But I don't know that he's that easy to place. Generally, if you're deferential about the music of Elton John and the lyrics of Bernie Toppin falling under a pop heading, well, then that gives you a lot of room to move around. But there's very little here that's pop in the sense that maybe, you know, Mariah Carey is pop. It's interesting, and yet I don't find, I'm not tempted to put Elton John in a category of modern folk either, even though there's some of that adult contemporary style as well. As I kind of wrap up my focus on Toppin, I think the right thing to do is to say, hey, you don't tease people by saying you came up with a top ten list of your favorite songs that Toppin wrote the lyrics for and that Elton John performed without calling him out. So I think I will do it in a ranking of 10 to 1. And I think most people who don't know me well might be surprised by the by the top two. But by going in reverse order, we'll start with another surprise. Probably the only song on this list that I think would not qualify as a greatest hit or part of a, of a hits collection. Tower of Babel from the uh, Captain Fantastic and the Brown and Brander Cowboys CD just stood out to me as the track from that that I thought was the most interesting. I appreciate Toppin's lyrics, even in places where Toppin's lyrics raise challenging and quasi-theological concerns. If you aren't familiar with Tower of Babel, it's worth a look and a listen from that perspective. It's amazing to me that I was uh, allowed to keep that album in my household when that was the song I played most often, and the lyrics include, Jesus, don't save the guys in the Tower of Babel. Number nine, The Bitch is Back. Uh, this was an album that I didn't bring into my household when I was a kid. Um, the Caribou album had that song as the lead single, and I thought it was probably going to be a problem that the word bitch might have been enough, even though it's it's uh, its use is open to multiple interpretations. Uh, it's not in that sort of uh, pejorative way. Your song, number eight. And maybe a surprise to me that I ended up sorting it that low on the list, but in some ways, there's a moment in your song where the words take me out just a little bit. Um, he's talking about somebody that he loves in a deep and passionate way, but then also in the songwriting, confesses he doesn't know the color of the person's eyes. Kind of takes me out of the song just a little bit. But when it comes to writing music to a poem, this one's pretty impressive because there's a moment early on where he says, uh, if I were a sculptor, eh, but then again, no. And that's the kind of thing where if you handed a songwriter that lyric sheet, it might come back to you with some redlining. It might get the penmanship. I can read the note in the English teacher's kind of margin saying, well, make up your mind what you, what you want to say and then say it. But I think Elton John, by interviews I've seen, took inspiration from that unusual turn of phrase and it might have had a, a lot to do with the actual tone of the song itself. Your song is neither slow and sappy, nor upbeat and poppy. It's kind of all things and no things at once. And despite the fact that not being able to remember whether the eyes were green or blue strikes me as a problem, the song's top ten material. Number seven, the title track to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Number six, Tiny Dancer. I don't know if Tiny Dancer would have been this high on my list before I saw the movie Almost Famous. But sometimes seeing a song loved by others and used in, an, in its own artistic creation, the bus scene in Almost Famous really drove home for me how much I really do love Tiny Dancer. Not as much as number five. From the same Mad Man Across Water album, Levon, 
Uh, again, a song that my parents, I'm sure, would have found controversial lyrically. But Levon was always, to me, my favorite of that that period of Elton John, just from a pure write-down-the-lyrics perspective, of everything, um, say, before the late 70s. Funeral for a Friend and Love Lies Bleeding is a bit of a cheat because in some ways you could make an argument that the funeral of a, for a friend part is 100% Elton John being the instrumental intro to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. But if I had to split this in two and take the, you know, say 10-11 minute track and choose just the five minutes I'm the most enthusiastic about, it's the Love Lies Bleeding part of it. And, be, and it's because of the lyrics. Number three is Daniel. And... I would have gone into this thinking that might have been even number one, but I don't have a recording of the song Daniel with the last verse in it. So for my entire life, I've recognized the song Daniel as a very meaningful track between brothers, whether literal or figurative, where the one brother has been injured and perhaps blinded, and yet is still an inspiration to what I'm presuming is the younger brother. But if you pulled me aside as a young you know, young fan of Elton John and say, 7th, 8th, ninth grade, and told me that the song Daniel was about the Vietnam War and had a verse that wasn't recorded for the album release that was more explicitly dealing with the American experience in the Vietnam War, I don't know that I would have believed you. But Daniel rates so highly, not just because of that fact, but because of the fact that it, rec- it represents as well as anything just how well these two Englishmen were doing and writing lyrics for a, for an American-focused audience. They were looking across the ocean, especially at this time in their career, writing songs that were about America, and in many ways kind of for Americans, and doing so with a great deal of wisdom, considering there was so little, in those early years, of practical experience to go with it. Uh, so I mentioned that the first two might be surprising. My number two is Empty Garden, Hey Hey Johnny. In Inappropriate Conversation 79... A farewell address from the Mexican mountains, I talk about some of the things that I found particularly challenging at the last part of my high school experience. And Empty Garden by Elton John is a song that really got me through those experiences. It both expressed that sense of loss, and I was experiencing a loss of sorts during that point in my life, but also a sense of longing. And it was it was an extremely unrequited song. In this case, about two friends. Among my favorite stories, and it's absolutely my favorite story that's not used in the movie Rocket Man, is just generally speaking the relationship between Elton John and John Lennon. This Hey Hey Johnny song was written from the perspective of somebody who cared deeply about John Lennon and was dealing with his loss to such a sudden and tragic act of violence. But I was very surprised when I bought my first live album from Elton John. I believe it's called Here and There. Uh, one of the uh, one album, one of the CDs recorded on uh, in England, and the other one recorded in New York City, and kind of produced a little bit sort of warts and all from that perspective. What surprised me was in the New York part of the concert, John Lennon is on stage with Elton John at a certain point, performing not just some of Elton John's songs, but some of John Lennon's songs as well. I'm told it goes back to a bet that they placed where John Lennon was going to skip recording, or at least including on one of his albums, the song Whatever Gets You Through the Night. And Elton John not only encouraged him to release it, but told told John Lennon that he thought it would be a single. And apparently the men placed a wager that with each other that if the song was a hit single, say top 40, top 20, whatever, 
that John Lennon would repay the favor by appearing live on stage with Elton John the next time he was performing in New York City. That happened. It was recorded. It was released on CD. And when you consider the fact that at the time that was done, and of course, the death of John Lennon was such a surprise that five minutes before it happened, no one saw it coming. It's an amazing relic of Lennon's career that it was there. Now, there are reasons why I imagine you might leave this particular piece out of a movie like Rocket Man. Part was because Rocket Man was already filled with many unbelievable flights of fancy, and that might have come off as just another fantasy and not a reality. And the other thing is that the movie was very much focused on Elton John, and trying to cast a convincing actor in the John Lennon role might have been too much to ask. The reality, and the truth of it is, one of the intentional factual mistakes in Rocket Man is inferring that Elton John took his last name, his stage last name, from John Lennon. It actually, by all accounts, came from his uh, one of his mentors at the time, Long John Baldry. But it was a way in the movie of giving a much-needed and completely appropriate nod to John Lennon. Because I find the relationship between Lennon and John to be fascinating. And Empty Garden is a testament to that. For me, number one goes all the way back to near the very beginning of the recording career of Elton John. And in the movie Rocket Man, presented to us, again, maybe with historical accuracy, maybe not, as the one key piece of poetry that inspired Elton John to contribute his part to this partnership that lasts all the way to, to this day. Border Song is the one. Uh, recorded by Elton John, later recorded by Aretha Franklin and Eric Clapton and others. It is lyrically probably my favorite of all of Toppin's lyrics. And when I was debating as a young person whether to go out and buy Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 1, having heard it at a friend's house down the street, the song that sealed the deal wasn't, you know, Rocket Man, it wasn't Crocodile Rock, it wasn't Honky Cat, it was Border Song. And the reason has a lot to do with our different drummer, Bernie Toppin. I have let too much time go by between the events in late mid to late August at the Pride 48 Expo in New Orleans and this point near the end of September where I'm doing a recording to try to kind of commit to memory a proud to know you for. I will say that it wouldn't be inaccurate to describe my participation as gregarious, and I'm comfortable using that as the subtitle for this particular episode. Absolutely nothing in my experience makes me think I don't want to do this again. We will see what happens in terms of being able to make a commitment on an annual basis year in and year out. But there are still people that I haven't seen since 2015 I'd like to see again. Some folks I haven't met yet, to be honest, that I wouldn't mind meeting. So we'll see what happens as the plans get made for a future year. There's definitely going to be one of these years where the summer vacation travel plans for my wife and I don't have us close enough to New Orleans to justify a flight there on the way to Las Vegas or a flight from Boston to there to keep the vacation going for at least one more weekend. We will see what happens. It's enough to say that I hope it comes through in the live recordings that have been made over the years at Pride 48, 
whether it's Walk the Earth 30, going back to September 2015, Inappropriate Conversations 212, Intersections in the Neighborhood, released in podcast form September 2018, or the most recent episode of Inappropriate Conversations, number 218, Why We Watch, I hope it comes through that the event itself has a wonderful, uh, wonderful energy and a genuine family spirit. This is more important than ever, in my opinion. As a community, Pride 48 has got people who are mourning right now. The loss of a mother, the loss of a grandmother, the loss of a husband. These things have an impact, and it's important, I think, enough to remain engaged as long as possible and to carry on in conversations that at times are person-to-person and face-to-face, but at times are conversations that are happening across and through podcasts. And some of those conversations happen, well, when you're speaking with your mouth full. It is what it is. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.